0: It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small-town clinics, big-city health systems, and healthcare care professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday, and Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck.
1: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. The Trump administration last week delayed enforcement of a rule of penalizing drug manufacturers and overcharge providers in the 340B drug discount program. Who's likely to be impacted the most by this enforcement delay? For answers, we check in with Marine Testoni in Washington. Maureen is the interim president and chief executive officer for 340B Health. Continuing a series on alleged bias and extrapolations audits is senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. Frank has part two in his ongoing investigation. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. Whistleblower attorney Mary Inman is standing by in London to report on whistleblower retaliation. This is in the case of Mosaic Health in Missouri. And Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer checks in with his Medicare Advantage report. Well, we began this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his rounds here on Monitor Monday.
0: Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Today I want to
2: talk a little bit about money. Now, I know you're not supposed to talk about money because some think if you talk about money, you're inevitably going to do something illegal to get more money. But I think that's far from the truth. Hospitals cannot stay open if they can't cover their expenses. And the government is well aware of that. that's one reason that critical access hospitals get paid based on cost and not the DRG system. A hospital with an average daily census of four patients would not survive, and that would leave large swaths of our country without any hospitals. But putting aside the critical access hospitals, there are many other hospitals throughout the country that are struggling to survive. Now, why is this happening? Well, most people know that hospital payment for Medicare for admissions is adjusted for teaching, for uncompensated care, and for a disproportionate share of underinsured patients. But there's also an adjustment made for what CMS calls the wage index. In simple terms, that is an adjustment made to compensate for the cost of employing people in the area. If wages are higher in the community, the hospital will need to pay more to employ staff. In non-urban areas, wages are obviously lower. The base index is, of course, 1.0. At the extremes, near Apple headquarters in California, the wage index is 1.7312, and in rural Georgia, it is 0.7357. Now, how does that translate to payments? Well, for an inpatient admission with a lower weighted DRG, that can result in a payment differential between $4,800 in a low wage index hospital up to $10,900 with a high wage index. So not only is the um, inpatient admission being adjusted, but there's also wage index adjustments made to outpatient services. And that means payment for an observation state can vary from $1,900 up to $3,400. Now this wage index is also applied to the physician fee schedule. So while the cost of living in a rural area is lower, the payment differential to physicians can be substantial driving physicians to seek employment in larger communities, leaving rural areas underserved. Fortunately, this issue is getting attention at HHS with Secretary Azar telling Congress that he supports legislation to address this. There's also the issue of the increasing cost of medications and implants and devices that's making the wage index less pertinent. But since budget neutrality must be maintained, this may get ugly. Speaking of money, in my Rack Monitor webinar last week, I discussed what to do with a patient who is improperly admitted as an inpatient. And part of deciding how and when to fix your mistake does involve money. I've seen hospitals that never condition code 44 because they're such a hassle, and instead of leaving the admissions as inpatient and doing a self-denial. But while self-denial is easier, you rarely have the opportunity to bill for any observation hours. As a result, the payment for a self-denied inpatient admission can pay up to $1,500 less if you did the condition code 44, and you get paid much faster with the condition code 44 than a self-denial. More money faster? I bet I know which one your CFO would want you to do. If you want to learn more about this, you can watch my webinar on demand.
1: Chuck, back to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of Bar One Position Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, M.D. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. As we report at the top of the broadcast, there is another whistleblower case that demands our attention. Here now calling in from London is... Whistleblower Attorney Mary Inman. Good morning, Mary.
3: Good morning, Chuck. Thanks so much for having me on the program. I've had the privilege of speaking regularly on Monitor Monday's programs about Medicare fraud cases that have been initiated by whistleblowers. My practice focuses on representing whistleblowers under False Claims Act, which empowers whistleblowers with inside information that their employer is committing Medicare fraud to initiate a lawsuit on the government's behalf. To date, my remarks have always focused on the underlying Medicare fraud that the whistleblower has exposed and the government's prosecution of that action. Today, however, I've been asked to talk about something we don't often consider here on Monitor Monday, the personal circumstances of the whistleblowers who bring this vital information forward. They do so at enormous personal risk to to their professional and personal lives. Whistleblowers are more likely to be retaliated against for bringing information forward. The notion is you blame the messenger rather than listening to the message. It's human instinct to lash out against the bearer of bad news. These tendencies can be seen in the names that we have for whistleblowers. They're often referred to as rat, mole, or snitch. To counter these instincts and prevalence of these actions, the False Claims Act has Section H, a provision that protects whistleblowers against retaliation. The woman that we wanted to talk about today is a woman by the name of Deborah Conrad, a whistleblower who tried to report fraudulent billing practices at Mosaic Life Care, a practice with over 10 locations in the area surrounding Kansas City. She was with the company as a coder for over 40 years since she was a teenager. The underlying fraud that she was able to expose involved submitting claims to Medicare for procedures that were not eligible for Medicare reimbursement. She reported the fraud to her supervisor several times before filing a False Claims Act action. She filed a False Claims Act suit in April of 2017. She moved to another coding department and was put on a development plan in May of 2017. And she was also accused of violating HIPAA shortly afterwards, and then she was fired. She is now suing Mosaic for whistleblower retaliation and age discrimination. She's 57 and was replaced by a 42-year-old. The company was eventually audited and had, as a result of the information that she brought forward and had to return millions of dollars based on the error that Conrad is pointing out. This suit, the retaliation suit, which was only filed two weeks ago, um, is still in progress. We will keep you posted on further programs about how ms conrad is proceeding thanks chuck back to you
1: thanks very much mary that was whistleblower attorney mary inman mary is with the london office of Constantine cannon thanks again mary and coming up in about uh, nine minutes after the hour in your time zone we're going to hear from david glazer j paul spencer frank cohen and our special guest maureen testoni with 340b health this is monday june 11th the president is in singapore and you're listening to monitor monday stand by
0: Monitor Monday is brought to you today by Rack University, inviting you to attend an exclusive webcast on coding and documenting pain management services. To avoid audits and possible takebacks, you need to understand requirements for coding and documenting pain management services in support of medical necessity for the services performed. Every hospital and medical practice should be aware of specific documentation requirements as well as the appropriate protocol for validating medical necessity for pain management procedures. Join us for a timely webcast, Avoid Medical Necessity Audits for Pain Management. It's next Tuesday, June 19th, and it features Deb Grider. To attend, click on the Register button in the handout section of today's program, or visit the RAC University Web Store.
1: We're back, and just a reminder that now you and your team can benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory education webcast from the industry's most knowledgeable experts. All webcasts, both live and on demand, are available anytime, any place, on any device through the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast Portal. Now, let's check in with healthcare attorney David Glaser, who's reporting some risky business. David, what is risky this morning?
4: Good morning, Chuck. So, on May nineteenth, the Upshot column in the New York Times discussed Anthem's experiment with denying more emergency room visits, arguing that the uh, patient should have known that the emergency department care was unnecessary. So one of the stories in the article perfectly illustrates the giant flaw in Anthem's policy. When Jason, who's now 32, became short of breath in 2015, he went to the emergency room. He was treated for a panic attack. Two days later, fearing he had heart problems, he returned. In that visit, his pulse was over 150. So how did Anthem handle these two visits? The first visit was denied because it was coded as a panic attack. The second visit was allowed because it included the final diagnosis of breathing trouble. Now to Anthem's credit, when Jason appealed the denial, the first visit was paid. But think about how crazy this is. The first time he had symptoms, they denied the care, but they actually allowed the repeat visit. Why? They focus on the final diagnosis code. Now, it should be obvious to any rational person that the final diagnosis code isn't material for determining whether the patient was reasonably visiting the ED. If I have chest pain, the range of diagnosis would include anything from an MI to gas. Obviously, the latter isn't an emergency. However, my ability to determine which of the conditions I have is suspect at best. In fact, as a layperson, if I attempted to help you determine whether you had an MI or gas, I'd be breaking the law, practicing medicine without a license. Non-physicians aren't supposed to make medical judgments. Nevertheless, according to that article in the Times and the American College of Emergency Physicians, Anthem conducted an experiment in the six states, Kentucky, Missouri, Indiana, Ohio, New Hampshire, and Connecticut. Conducting reviews based solely on the final diagnosis and without any review of medical records. The good news is that Anthem has reverted to its previous policy. But during the experiment, approximately 3% of emergency visits in Missouri were being denied. Uh, at this point, they're paying closer to 99% or above 99% of all emergency visits. It was like 996 As a result of Anthem's policy, Missouri has passed a new Senate Bill 982. That law defines an emergency medical condition as one that is sudden and that would lead a prudent layperson to believe that immediate medical care is required. The bill does something else that's very interesting. It requires health professionals and insurance companies to enter into binding arbitration when a health professional provides emergency care to an out-of-network patient and the insurer and health care organization are unable to agree on reimbursement the professional is prohibited from sending a bill to the patient in excess of whatever the arbitration determines. Now, I think there's a definite logic to this provision. When a patient has insurance that covers an emergency medical condition, one thing is clear. If they go to the emergency room, either the care provided is reasonable and the insurer should pay, or if the care is unreasonable, then the fault lies with the professional or the facility. In either case, the patient shouldn't be responsible for the bill. So, I recommend that listeners use a similar approach when dealing with these problems. When you get in a fight with an insurance company about reimbursement, consider telling the patient that if the insurer won't pay, they won't face liability. Now, next week, I'll explain why this is permissible in this situation, despite the fact that in other situations, agreeing to accept insurance as payment in full can actually eliminate the insurer's obligation to make any payment. So Chuck, when foreigners sang about this, I thought they were talking about sea urchins. They weren't. I guess that means I get a C in understanding, speaking of C's, a C in understanding song lyrics. But hopefully my legal analysis is better. And when someone reasonably thinks that it's urgent, 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 emergency, insurance should cover the claim.
1: Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David. Very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on Medicare Advantage Organizations is Monitor Money National Correspondent, Jay Paul Spencer. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, I'd like
5: to take a little bit of a detour today and talk about Medicaid managed care. Recently, uh, the Government Accountability Office was asked to look at the error rate for Medicaid managed care. When the CMS measured the error rate for Medicaid as a whole as 10%, uh, or about $37 billion of all dollars paid, and followed that with a Medicaid managed care error rate of 0.3%. Uh, there was a, a somewhat of a sense of suspicion with regard to the numbers that were brought forward. The Government Accountability Office decided to take a look at this recently and found that uh, while 0.3% was the measured error rate, there are some problems with the way that is being brought forward with Medicaid managed care. We've talked many times on this show about uh, data inconsistencies from state to state when we're talking about measuring error rates and we're talking about uh, just collecting information on Medicaid recipients on a state-to-state level. In some ways, that's affecting a 0.3% error rate on Medicaid managed care. Uh, unfortunately, there have been some payment integrity uh, programs that have been put forward. We've talked about the Medicaid RAC programs that have basically disappeared and uh, based on the fact that no contractor really wants to work for the very low contingency fees for Medicaid RAC, but understand that Medicaid RAC doesn't handle Medicaid managed care. So uh, a lot of efforts have been put forward recently, but these wouldn't be reflected in the error rate that's being brought forward. And another problem is there are some steps that Medicaid managed care organizations are taking, but the GAO found that these efforts are not ensuring the identification reporting of overpayments to providers or, more importantly, unallowable costs by managed care organizations. Uh, So this bears uh, repeating. I mean, uh, uh, again, we're measuring a 0.3% error rate for Medicaid managed care across the country. Now, when they did the payment error rate measurement, they just didn't see that these numbers matched up. And it's something that the GAO wants to take a look at going further. Uh, they also found that 10 of the 27 federal and state audits and investigations identified about 68 million in overpayments uh, you know, and in some investigations found about 137.5 million when they went further. Uh, But uh, the problem is, is that some of these uh, uh, investigations are now stale dated and some of these audit programs are not continuing. So uh, when we take a look at the uh, Medicaid payment error rate, uh, it appears that they have a long way to go with managed care organizations, uh, but we're going to go further and taking a look at this, and I would imagine that these numbers would revise as time goes on. And with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck.
1: Thank you very much. That was Senior Healthcare Analyst J. Paul Spencer. Thanks, Paul, very much. Mm We continue reporting on the alleged bias and extrapolation. Now that's reporting on this developing story is senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. Frank, what's the fundamental problem here that you're discovering?
6: Part one, uh, Chuck, I talked about how the program integrity manual violates just basic standards of statistical practice such areas as precision or sample selection, frame development, units, and the like. And in the most recent article, I wrote about some other issues, such as misuse of seed values and the exclusion of zero-based claims, both of which can create unreasonable bias and error within the sampling process. But these are minor compared to what I'm discussing this morning, which in my opinion constitutes the most egregious offense of all, and that's a denial of this guarantee of a reasonable defense. Uh, Section 8.4.1.2 of the Program Integrity Manual states the following. It says statistical sampling is used to calculate and project the amount of overpayments made on claims. The Medicare Prescription Drug Improvement Modernization Act of 2003 mandates that before using extrapolation to determine overpayment amounts uh, to be recovered by recoupment, offset, or otherwise, and it says there must be a determination of sustained or high level of payment error or documentation that educational intervention has failed to correct the payment error. Now, first of all, who determines that there's a sustained or high level of error? Technically, it's the secretary of HHS who's probably never seen an audit. And what legal definitions exist for either sustained or high level? Well, does sustained mean that the problem is going on for a week, a month, a year, longer? And and how about high level of payment error? Does high mean an error rate of 10%, maybe 20%, 50%? How about 1%, Chuck? Do you think that a 1% error rate could possibly be considered as high? And the fact is it can because there is no existing definition and, therefore, only is determined by the auditor and the auditor alone. I once defended a provider where the paid error rate was 1.6%, yet the auditor chose to pursue an extrapolation. Their reasoning? Well, let's read the last sentence in 8.4.1.2, and I quote, by law the determination that a standard high level of payment there exists is not subject to administrative or judicial review what does that even mean well it means that the provider is not per- permitted to defend against a challenge to this loosely held idea that a sustained or high level of error even exists. Imagine this, Chuck. You're driving alone uh, or along on a road, a highway maybe, and there's no defined speed limit. A cop pulls you over. He gives you a ticket for speeding. But you say, how could I possibly be speeding if there isn't a speed limit? Officer, and the cop says, Well, whether or not you are speeding is left solely to my interpretation. And by the way, you are not permitted to contest my opinion in court. So at all levels of appeal, the provider cannot include error rate as a defense. And this is an ultra-biased, one-sided determination by some non-neutral, prejudiced arbitrator as to the validity and even of even initiating an extrapolation. And remember, a sustained or high level of error cannot even be determined until after the audit is complete. Yet, the auditor already knows in advance, that an extrapolation will, in fact, take place because they and only they have the right to determine whether this ethereal and ill-defined concept exists. So in every sense, this cripples the provider's defense. It forces them to focus on all the other aspects of the statistical analysis, but as has been shown, not just by me, but by others, over and over again, the Program Integrity Manual, which purports to officiate the complex topic of extrapolation in only 20 pages, is all but void of standards of statistical practice. As such, the entire process becomes a bad joke. You know what the problem is, Chuck? The joke is on us, and the only people that are laughing are the auditors. And that's the world according to Frank.
1: Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Frank, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the Director of Analytics and Business Intelligence for Doctors Management, and you can read Frank's exclusive reporting on the alleged bias in extrapolation audits on our homepage at rackmonitor.com. Last Tuesday, the Trump administration delayed until next July enforcement of the rule penalizing drug manufacturers and overcharged providers in the 340B drug discount program. So what happens next and who are most likely to be impacted by this enforcement delay? Here now is the interim president and the CEO for 340B Health, Maureen Testoni. Good morning, Maureen.
7: Good morning, Chuck. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Um, I am the CEO, interim CEO of 340B Health. We're a trade association of hospitals, and we represent hospitals that participate in a program called the 340B Drug Discount Program. This is a program that was enacted in 1992, um, according to bipartisan legislation, and it requires manufacturers to give discounts to drugs that they sell to safety net providers. So to get into the program, the providers have to be able to show that they are serving a high number of low-income individuals. Um, There's a lot of different types of providers that can qualify, provided they can meet that strict criteria. 340B Health represents hospitals that participate in that program. We are very concerned about the the regulation that was postponed um, that you mentioned, Chuck. Uh, It is a regulation that came about following several reports by the Office of the Inspector General that manufacturers were not complying with the 340B discount rules. There was, in fact, widespread overcharging of providers. As a result of those uh, reports by the OIG, uh, Congress passed a law in 2010 that, made, that set up some criteria that manufacturers um, have to follow, criteria around make how they set their prices, criteria around making sure that providers can see those prices, because under current law they could not even see the prices, um, and criteria establishing penalties for drug manufacturers that knowingly overcharge providers. Now, this was back in 2010, and we sit here today in 2018 with though none of those provisions having been enforced. Um, unfortunately, uh, various administrations have uh, sort of dragged their feet on releasing regulations um, uh, to implement these proposals. The Obama administration finally released uh, a rule on this right before uh, he left office. The Trump administration promptly postponed that rule and has postponed it several times, the fifth time being just a couple of weeks ago. So we're very concerned about the fact that this is being postponed. 340B hospitals uh, make up just 38% of hospitals in the country, but they are responsible for 60% of uncompensated care. So that's the care that is given to low-income populations that can't afford to pay for their own health care. So if they are not receiving the discounts that they, are, uh, that they are allowed by law to receive, this obviously impacts their ability to provide that kind of uncompensated care. This is going to affect a lot of different types of hospitals, perhaps especially rural hospitals who are really relying on the 340B program to help keep their doors open. Um, so with that, uh, that's how it is, Chuck, and I'm tossing it back to you.
1: Thanks, Maureen, very much. Just a real quick question. Why do you think there's been so much attention paid to the 340B drug program lately?
7: So the the administration, the Trump administration, has made it very clear that they want to focus on the high cost of drugs. Unfortunately, I think that the drug industry has taken um, that... uh, that push by the administration and is trying to get people to focus on the 340B program in terms of drug pricing. Now, the 340B program specifically requires drug manufacturers to reduce their prices to safety net providers. And so we think that, that this, this um, focus on the 340B program is really just a way to cover up the fact that there is a lack of true transparency on how drug manufacturers set their prices.
1: Very good. Thanks, Maureen, very much. That was Maureen Testoni. Maureen is the interim president and chief executive officer of 340B Health. Maureen is also an expert on all aspects of the 340B drug discount program. Now's the time for our Monday Q&A. David, what's happening? So I've
4: got a question here from Rose for you, Paul. So could you offer the source of your Medicaid error rate information?
5: Well, it's important to point out that the uh, organization within CMS that takes a look at Medicaid error rates is called the Payment Error Rate Measurement Program. This was started back in 2002, but they aggregate data going forward. For this particular GAO study, they were looking for service, they were looking at uh, services that were measured or any type of integrity programs that were put forward between January of 2012 and September of 2017. Uh, most of the payment error rate measurement information can be found on the CMS website under the research statistics data and systems portion of uh, the, the CMS website. There are several uh, reports uh, that are listed there. And this information is aggregated over time, but it's becoming more and more of a focus with CMS in the same way that the Medicare error rate has had a a similar type of focus over the last 10
4: years. Thank you so much, Paul. Dr. Hirsch, David's got a question for you. So don't hospitals with a lot of occurrence code 44s get in trouble? Is it better to just
2: avoid them? So you mean condition code 44? Condition code, occurrence code, yes. That's okay. You're just a lawyer. You don't know these things. Um, I don't, you know, the number of condition code 44s you do does get reported to the QIO and to the MACS. So they do have that data. I've never seen a hospital ever get audited or get in trouble for having too many of them. Remember that when you do a self denial, you put a code on there indicating it's a self denial. So really, they're going to get the same kind of data to see how many admissions you screwed up in the beginning. So I don't think there's any risk to it any more than self-denying. Thank
4: you, Ron, or dare I say, Dr. Hirsch. So and I'll close with just a quick observation on, on Frank's piece, which is while I'm a big fan of challenging statistics at the redetermination and reconsideration level, in my experience, when you, pr- when you win on statistical challenges, it's so common to get reversed at the MAC that I often put more emphasis at that level on the merits. Um, and I think Frank's point about the frustration of the statistics is is very well founded. It drives me a little bit crazy, and so there's often a an allocation of resources question there because you can wind up with the weird situation where you, your win at the ALJ on statistics becomes a pyrrhic victory uh, if you get reversed later on. I, I think that the statistical stuff is terribly unfair. Basically, at this point, the law is, it doesn't have to be statistically valid. And I share Frank's frustration. And I will turn it back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks very much, David. And we share your enthusiasm for that remark. That's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday. We want to thank you very much for being with us today. And we want to thank our outstanding panelists, Frank Cohen, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, J. Paul Spencer, Mary Inman, calling in from London, and our special guest, Maureen Testoni from 340B Health. And we want to thank you for being with us this morning. We look forward to you returning to us next Monday for another edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Rack Monitor. And Monitor Monday, thank you very much for being with us.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.